Hello and welcome back to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United. I'm Matt Ketchell, fan, engagement and football editor at Chronicle Live. And we're going to cover possibly the lowest ebb of Newcastle's 140-year history today, the period between Kevin Keegan leaving as a player and returning as a manager, 1984 to 1992. Joining me to do this is, of course, the club's official historian, Paul Joannou, and perhaps the ultimate 80s and 90s Newcastle United expert, Mark Corby, a lifelong Toon fan, fanzine contributor, NUFC Supporters Trust member, and the admin of, of one of my favourite Facebook pages, which shares rare Newcastle United pictures and video clips from the period of 1980 through to 1994. Mark, welcome to the show. Uh, I was wondering if you could just start by giving us a little bit of a background on yourself as a fan of, of Newcastle United and obviously your specific interest in the 80s and 90s era of the club. Yeah, appreciate the invite, gents. Uh, pleasure to be here. Yeah, I mean, my first game wasn't until um, early 1988, but I was hooked on Newcastle probably around about 85, 86 period, um, Peter Beardsley. And then when he went to the World Cup and part of Gary Lineker, that, that was it. I just That was such an influence on me being sort of obsessed with football. And I suppose from that moment, it was just a case of counting down the days till I could find someone to take me to the game who who, who shared the interests. Um, luckily, I got to see Paul Gascoigne and the likes of Paul Goddard, etc., who I'm sure we'll talk about in greater detail. Um, and I suppose my contribution to sort of fanzines and, and the, the nostalgia page you mentioned, it was just out of sheer boredom um, when we got relegated in 2009. It was just what's going to happen to the football club now under Mike Ashley. And um, set up the Facebook page and lo and behold, met some excellent contributors uh, from all around the world, really, who just send me their personal pictures of, um, you know, games that they've attended, um, behind the scenes footage. And it's just went from strength to strength. It's still a joy to do it. And it's just nice that I've mentioned the board of Mike Ashley and bring them right up to date now. We've got a new uh, new era ahead of us, which hopefully we can uh, get a little bit more excited about. Yeah, definitely. It's made for a fantastic last chapter of this podcast series, put it put it that way. But we're strictly 1984 to 1992 today, and we're gonna we've got a couple of those pictures that you mentioned to discuss later on in the show. But um, we're gonna try and cover eight seasons in this episode, and they were eventful to say the least. The the ugly, the bad, and eventually the good. Paul, can you set the scene at the club then with uh, Kevin Keegan? helicoptering off into the night and the team preparing for a Division One campaign without King Kev in 1984. Yeah, well, in the summer of 1984, uh, as United began another period back in the top flight, um, it all started with a bang, really. Uh, unfortunately, it was the departure of Arthur Cox, who moved on to Derby County after a dispute uh, over money and funding for players. And in came a Geordie hero to take charge, uh, World Cup winner Jack Charlton, who everybody knew and loved in the Northeast. Um, without Kevin Keegan, could United stay at the top flight was the big question. Still did have both Chris Waddle and Peter Beardsley, and they both flourished at a higher level. But immediately, Big Jack's style of football saw United change the way they played with, with Keegan. It was quite a contrast. Um, we had a high ball game to suit two tall new strikers, which uh, were added to the ranks, Tony Cunningham and George Riley. Uh, now, not everyone liked that, fans and players alike. Uh, importantly, Waddle and Beardsley weren't too uh, keen on that style of football. But uh, Big Jack made sure United stayed in Division 1, finishing in 14th spot. Right, and uh, something unique also happened at the club 
which I'm not sure had ever happened before. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but it definitely hasn't happened since. Newcastle won the FA Youth Cup. Well, they had won it before, uh, back in 1962, uh, when a a group of stars developed, the likes of uh, Monker, Craig and Suddock and the like. Uh, And it happened again uh, at that time. um, There was a Youth Cup victory for the juniors, uh, and a batch of kids started to break through, just like 1962 including a certain Paul Gascoigne. Uh, but United lost one of their stars to, to begin with. You know, Chris Waddle moved to Spurs at the end of the season for a hefty fee. Yeah, good opportunity, I think, for our first player focus of the episode, Paul. Chris Waddle, if you wouldn't mind. Tell us about Waddler. Yeah, well, Waddler uh, wasn't one of those FA Youth Cup lads. He, he came to Newcastle from the old-fashioned uh, Northern League, uh, from Townlow Town, of all clubs, uh, as a raw winger. Uh, That happened in July 1980, and he cost all of £1,000 to start with. He never looked like an athlete. Anybody who saw him in the reserves to start with, he looked like a a lumbering forward, tall, uh, with with not not a great athletic build. But Arthur Cox and Kevin Keegan played a huge part in the Gateshead lad developing into a a top player. Uh, And by 1984-85, he was one of the best uh, new prospects in the country. He could go past players with a, with a telling cross and score goals on a regular basis. And England came calling, uh, as did Tottenham. And he moved down to White Hart Lane for 590000 which was a, a big fee. And that, that was in July 1985. Of course, Waddle moved on again to Marseille in 1989. And, and that's when the French club were one of the best club sides in Europe. And, and Waddle really reached his peak with Marseille because he was... Uh, absolutely fabulous and I don't know if anybody wants to see a clip uh, or some good clips of Waddle in Marseille there's a there's a video that you can find or a DVD probably now uh, Le Dribbler Fou uh, and he, he, you know, some of the stuff he did with Marseille was just amazing uh, he earned 62 caps for England and, and reached two World Cups and was quite a player the first of three that Newcastle lost that really we should have kept yeah definitely I'll try and put a link to that video Paul's described in the show notes. I literally saw a clip today on Twitter, the one where he flicks it over the goalkeeper and back heels it into the empty net for Marseille. Um, Mark, where do you stand on, on Chris Waddle? I unfortunately never got to see him play in a black and white shirt, but he you know, he was a Geordie and he did seem like a real Newcastle fan type of player, quite quite a lot of flair, but obviously did his best stuff away from St James's Park. Yeah, like yourself, uh, Matt, I never had the fortune to see uh, Waddle in black and white, but... He was one of those players, as I mentioned before, with um, the World Cup 86. He was a standout player. You know, you had Lineker, you had Brian Robson, players like that. You, you couldn't help but admire these players. And you, you educate yourself over the years and, and, and work out what the, how they did it at your club. And it, it's just unfortunate that he was a player that I never got to see. Um, you know, a bit like Supermac, a bit like Kevin Keegan and his playing days. And it's just sad that I never got to see them. But... As, as Paul rightly said there, he went on to be um, an absolutely fantastic player at every club he served, you know, even when he go back up to when we got in the Premier League, when he come back with Sheffield Wednesday and John Beresford had the misfortune of marking him that night. We might have won 4-2, but Chris Waddle was unbelievable. And um, it's just it's just quite sad that um, we never got that opportunity to re-sign him because I know Keegan definitely want, was looking at him um, when we were in the, um, on the verge of getting promoted. Um 
But yeah, I, I think with Chris Waddle, the jury's always out on whether you believe he was a Newcastle or a Sunderland supporter, mind. And I do think it's quite sad that some people refer to him as a Judas because he, you know, the, the club had no ambition and it, it continued with, you know, with other players, which we'll touch on. But they had no ambition. And as Paul touched on before, I shuddered when he mentioned George Riley and Tony Cunningham because Charlton's setup was to suit them and, and Waddle and uh, Beardsley unfortunately suffered a little bit because of that. They were a very, very exciting partnership and it's just a shame that, that Charlton ended up playing them on the wings, fundamentally. Uh, but a fantastic yeah. player. Shame I never seen him in black and white and hey, he went on to have a fantastic career, didn't he? Yeah. Great, interesting shout about him potentially signing for Keegan when Keegan came back as a manager. He did seem tailor-made for the entertainers like Beardsley, but obviously never happened. On to uh, 1985-86 then, Paul. The fans weren't happy and unfortunately this disquiet seemed to transmit onto the pitch and into the dugout, didn't it? It did. Uh, during the pre-season um, of 85-86, uh, fans became uh, very restless, uh, having sold Waddle. Uh, funds were limited and, and Jack Charlton was giving stick at, at the pre-season friendly uh, against Sheffield United uh, for his style of play and uninspiring signings. Uh, and Big Jack had no time for that at all and didn't like the criticism and simply walked out the club, not to come back apart from uh, in later years to watch his beloved Newcastle United as he was always a football, as always a, a fan from childhood. United had to find a new manager again and on the eve of the new season, in-stepped coach and former Fairs Cup winning goalkeeper Willie McFall. Uh, the popular McFall, you know, he was a, you know, there's not many goalkeeper managers in the game but he he did pretty well to start with he reverted back to a more pleasing style of football and united finished in mid-table uh yet they lost peter beardsley this time at the end of the season he had appeared for england with waddle but moved to liverpool uh, for a record fee at the end of that season and uh, that was number two of three to depart over the Tyne bridge and and as we mentioned before there uh, as mark mentioned probably nobody could blame those three lads for leaving Newcastle at that time because the club were in a pretty dire state and all three were destined for for much bigger things, which was proved the case uh, when they moved on. Yeah, interesting on Jack Charlton. Imagine if uh, managers today moved on as soon as the fans gave them stick. It would be a different landscape entirely. Um, Mark, though, Jack, Jack Charlton, he went on obviously to achieve great success as manager of Ireland. Uh, would you have liked to have seen him stay and, and make more of a fist of things, especially given his playing career, the family connections that he had to the club and the region? I, th I think in hindsight, um, it's probably a blessing that he did go um, because, as Paul rightly says, that the football wasn't attractive. I think there was there was sort of talk that perhaps Jack Charlton treat the club's money like his own. You know, he just didn't want to spend it. But, you know, Paul know more than me uh, whether there was funds readily made available. There's not many people you can say are legends for two countries, you know, Republic and, and England. He's well thought of, so fair play to him. And, and as Paul said, he, he never took any um, criticism. And you've got to give him the credit because he did say, if you don't want us, tell us and I'll go. And he did. You know, that was pretty much Jack Charlton to a T. Uh, uh, you've got to admire how his career turned out. And he, again, though, if you look at the Republic of Ireland team that he built over the following 10 years or so, it was pretty much like what we witnessed at Newcastle, you know, the, t the target men. But he could get the best out of players. But but yeah, sa sadly missed. I wouldn't say I would have been too disappointed if I had stayed around. But then again, I wasn't around to watch it. I think just with educating myself over the, the, you know, the years at that time, 
Um, I just don't think his, his, his football style was suited to what, what Newcastle supporters wanted, especially, as Paul said, after after the, the, the style that Arthur Cox uh, set up for us for promotion. Mm. So, Jordies are leaving the club as quick as they're joining the first team, weren't they, Paul? But at least, you know, some graduates from this talented youth team were beginning to get game time. Yeah, well, that, yeah, saw Gascoigne make an impact and he became a regular in the side. Uh, but he was to be the third Geordie star to head out of Gallagher's, unfortunately, uh, in the in the not too distant future. Uh, but also to find a place, times were, were junior graduates, Paul Stevenson, a, a, a raiding winger, and uh, centre forward Joe Allen, who uh, maybe didn't get enough chances in the black and white shirt and, and went on to have a good career elsewhere. And another player whose name is synonymous with this particular era, Peter Beardsley. Um, he's someone who's absolutely worthy of a player-focused Paul, one of the best. So if you would uh, focus through Peter Beardsley's time at Newcastle, please. Well, yeah, there's an awful lot to say about Peter Beardsley. 326 appearances, 119 goals in, in two spells at Newcastle. Um, and without doubt, one of the top 10 players of all time in Newcastle colours. He was at St James's Park, 1983 to 87, and then returned, of course, in 1993 to 97. Um, as a, you know, both as players, and then he came back as a, as a coach later. Long Benton, born and bred, product of Walls End Boys Club. It took a while for Peter to hit the big time. He was at Carlisle United, and everybody loved him at Carlisle in the lower divisions. Then he went to Vancouver Whitecaps, and he had a trial even at Manchester United. Played one game, but they didn't sign him. And then he arrived at St James's Park, September 1983, for 120,000. Uh, and he partnered Kevin Keegan and quickly became a, a new star in, in English football. You know, Peter had everything as a footballer. He had worth ethics, uh, pace, vision, importantly, ball talent at creating uh, and scoring goals. And, and those goals, you know, over the years that we saw him, you know, so many were so, you know, spectacular efforts and, and eye-catching moments. But Liverpool came calling in July 1987, 1.5 million record sale, yet Kevin Keegan always admired him. And when he was boss, he brought him back in July 1993 uh, to become a key factor in United's Premier League resurgence. Uh, and at that time, he was even better, to be honest. He was just uh, such one of the best players in the country in that second spell during the entertainers era. 59 England caps, two World Cups like Waddle, uh, just a fabulous footballer. Can't say much more than that. Mm. Mark, uh, I'm not sure if you caught Peter's first spell in Newcastle. You might have caught the end, but you would have definitely caught uh, the 1990s. Peter Beers in Newcastle. Where does he rank in terms of players you've seen play for the club? Yeah, without a doubt, he's my favourite of all time, you know, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, you think of the amount of players that he influenced, both at Newcastle, but also for England, for Liverpool. Um, and as Paul said there, when he, when he left Newcastle, he left a, a poor uh, average team. And went and played with the country's best in John Barnes, Aldridge, Ian Rush come back from Juventus. And, you know, it's 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 interesting that he, he went to the arch rivals Everton, didn't he? And, and he, he joined rejoined another sort of poor team on the slide. But by when when Kevin Keegan, you know, signed him, that was the lift. It was just the lift that we needed. And I think we knew in 1993 that we we're going to be okay in the Premier League. We never expected Biazzi to be as good as he was, I don't think. He was criminally overlooked by Graham Taylor at uh, at England, and lo and behold, we didn't qualify for the the nineteen ninety four World Cup in the US. But um, you know, he's formed for for Newcastle. Terry Venables recalled him, 
won his fiftieth uh, cap, I think, went at Newcastle and obviously grabbed a few more. And he was he was on the verge of the Euro '96. That's that's how great he still was playing in his mid thirties. I didn't catch him in his first spell, but I always recall when we were live on television, which was a rarity back then. We played West Ham. We beat them four 0 We were bottom of the league, and West Ham were challenging at the top. And it was all it was the the, the sort of the build that was all about who was going to part at Gary Lineker, Peter Beardsley, or Tony Cotty at West Ham. And Peter Beardsley just stole the show. He was absolutely phenomenal. And um, it's one of them games which sometimes I'll just watch again because the atmosphere is electric. Um, that was one of the reasons why I knew I had to go to the game because the atmosphere came across brilliant on the telly. We battered West Ham 4-0. Peter Biazzi was a standout, standout player and we, ha- we had the foundations of a good squad um, You know, going into the, the last couple of years of the 80s. But but Biazzi, just, just absolutely phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And I know Ian Wright said he was the best striker I ever played with. Gary Lineker did. Andy Cole must say that he's up there with the best, so just phenomenal and the best ever for me. Yeah, I think I know that West Ham game. I think I think the full thing's on YouTube, so it's another one yeah. we'll try and link to in, in the show notes. Uh, Paul, into 1986, how did new manager Willie McFall handle the uh, revolving door culture at St James's Park? Well, before Beardsley left uh, the club, 80, uh, 1986-87 was you know, a reasonable season in the end although United had a poor start they were sucked into a relegation fight but a few choice signings made 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 sure of survival uh, and certainly Paul Goddard when he came uh, from uh, West Ham uh, he arrived and hit 13 goals including eight in only nine games uh, he was a quality striker absolutely made the difference um, up front and uh, Newcastle survived a young Scott Darren Jackson also impressed uh, in the side as well but by then, it was the beginnings of a power struggle for control of Newcastle United. In the summer of 87, the club had to appease supporters without d- doubt, or at least try to. Um, for the new season, there was something of a mini spending spree, with Glyn Hodges and John Robertson arriving for big fees. Neither, though, were a success. But the first Brazilian to hit the top level in England uh, came along, a chap called Mirandina, and he caught the imagination of ev- everyone, really. And at first, the £575,000 record buy uh, looked a good purchase. He scored 13 goals in his first season, and United at times looked good um, when Mirandina and Gascoigne combined up front. And they were supported by another young youngster uh, who came from Ireland this time, uh, Michael O'Neill, and he netted 13 goals as well. Uh, United ended in a respectable and pleasing eighth place. But by the end of that season, Paul Gascoigne joined uh, Chris Waddle at Tottenham. And that was you know, a, a real blow. Uh, Newcastle fans were just dumbfounded that we'd lost uh, first Waddle and then Beardsley and now Gascoigne, who had just developed into a, a, a huge star in the making. Uh, that fueled anger, uh, pointed at the board, and, and without doubt, revolution was in the air. Mark, this is a really mixed period for the club. They just seem to be making... Some good decisions, like, you know, Mirandinha coming in, but also some catastrophically bad ones too, I have to say. Absolutely. I mean, Paul mentioned Gaza leaving, but also Paul Goddard. I mean, the impact, he was a great hold-up player. Um, and obviously we lost uh, Neil MacDonald as well, who was, you know, floating around the England squad. Um, but all, all three, in a way, were, were probably moved out because of the club's lack of direction, lack of ambition. And, you know, we may have had a good uh, new stand getting built, the new West Ham going up, which which became the Millburn. But ultimately, you know, as Kevin Keegan once said, uh, stands don't win your football games, good footballers do. And we kept selling our best players. 
But flip side of that, we did end up spending a hell of a lot of that money in the, the summer of 1988. And we did have one of the most expensive squads. So I, I think the disappointment of losing those three quality players was sort of sort of subsided a little bit because we ended up buying some what we, what we thought were great pro- prospects, some young players coming coming uh, signing, and we spent money for once. Um, broke the record a few times, as Paul said. And even though the disappointment of losing my best players, we, we, we did genuinely. Well, I genuinely felt that um, you know we were still still going to build and progress. Yeah, we'll talk about that spending spree in a second. But you know, it's just mad that some huge names played for this the club during this period. Big <laughs> local in- English Geordies who went on to have international success, and uh, not many not many come bigger in football. And a lad from Dunstan, Paul Gascoigne. Paul, we we need to hear the detail on on Gaza's time at Newcastle. The third player focus we've done this during this episode, but they, all three are worthy of them, not least Gaza. Yeah, well, he joined United as a as a kid in June, June 1981 uh, and, and rapidly developed uh, to make his debut uh, in 1985. Uh, even as a teenager, anybody who saw him play for the junior side and then the reserves um, could see uh, that he had something special. He just stood out above everybody else. And, and you know, that always tends to happen in football uh, at that level. If you've got the real quality, you stand out, and, and Gascoigne did. He had a special talent. He had skills to match the, the, the best. Great vision with the ball, could pass a ball short, long. Uh, he could shoot and he could dribble through uh, defenders. And, and he was strong on the ball. And he had a brand of entertainment. And, and really, he was, he was a bit like... The, he was the Len Shackleton of years before. He was an entertainer and he loved to, to play to the crowd as well. Uh, he became the country's biggest personality in that era, yet left, as we know, to Tottenham and later starred in Italy with Lazio and uh, over the border with Rangers. 57 England caps uh, to match the likes of Waddle and Beardsley, famously to star in the World Cup of 1990. Uh, he had a string of clubs at the end of his career, including Everton and Middlesbrough, uh, and, and still is, is thought of as, as quite a special footballer even today. Yeah, absolutely. Paul Gaza wasn't someone that I that I got to see play for Newcastle. I did see him play for, for Everton and a couple of other clubs. I don't know if you saw him, Mark. And I think the move away from Newcastle was right for Gaza, but maybe he should have gone to Man United rather than Tottenham. That's a, a, a debate. I don't know what you what your thoughts are on Gaza, Mark, but I'd love to hear them. Yeah, I did. I did fortunately see Gascoigne. Um, he was for, especially in the turn of the year in nineteen eighty eight. I remember um, he was winning. I think it was the Barclays Young Eagle Award. He, he the best young player the, in the country, and he was winning every other month. He was phenomenal, and he, he went on a, a bit of a, a scoring spell as well. I know we mentioned Michael O'Neill and Mirandina there. Uh, Mirandina scored a lot in the first half of the season. And Michael O'Neill took over in the second half. But Gascoigne as well, he scored some very important goals, some really good, he was a good free kick taker, he could score screamers, um, as Paul said, influential, he could take players on. Uh, much of the frustration of his teammates at times, mine, I do remember him having a bit of an, an argument with Paul Goddard on the pitch, uh, one game I attended. But um, but yeah, he, he was phenomenal, and, and it's, again, it's, it's quite sad that his first game for Spurs um, was the following season, and it was his debut at St. James's Park, and the amount of abuse him and Chris Waddle got that day you know the, the footage is out there, and it's 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 quite it's quite sad to think that the the supporters didn't look at the bigger picture and in, in, in the fact that they walked away because of lack of ambition. You know, but I suppose I think moving to Spurs did upset 
a lot of supporters simply because Spurs were probably on Paul Russell around about that time. You know, average mid-table team going through uh, through different uh, periods. I, I think a lot of people would have probably understood if you went to Man United or Liverpool, but because you went went to Spurs, I think there was a lot more upset. But uh, but as Paul said, he, he had a fantastic career and Christ, best player in the world in 1990. It's as simple as that. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. And as we approach the 90s, Paul, things start to get a little bit ugly in the boardroom. It's in James Park. Can you explain what the situation was there? Well, there was shareholder infighting uh, in the, uh, at that time, 1988-89. Uh, that escalated in the background and, and United had again to try and appease um, fans and influential uh, shareholders. They used the Gaza cash to spend again and, and even uh, went uh, rather crazy, to be honest. Uh, John Henry arrived, 500,000. Dave Besant, the goalkeeper, and Andy Thorne sent the half came from Wimbledon both for record £850,000 fees. But the new look side didn't click at all. And, and unfortunately, McFall's plans all fell apart. Um, United were in relegation trouble. And uh, you know, the popular McFall was sacked in October. And in arrived the ball, the bald eagle, uh, Jim Smith. And like Bill McGarry's appointment before, uh, a huge transfer merry-go-round occurred after that. Smith couldn't stop the drop. What could have been with Waddle, Beardsley and Gascoigne was the big question, of course. But looking back now, while there was a lot of supporter uh, resentment to the three of them, to be honest, looking back with a bit of uh, time, well, a lot of time now, nobody could blame any of them uh, for going uh, to the clubs that they went to. Newcastle just were in a, in a bit of a mess. Boardroom was not rich enough or powerful enough to support the football club. They had very little cash um, and they had to also spend an awful lot of money on ground improvements and, and only started that uh, in, in, at that time and couldn't afford to continue. So, you know, something had to give in the boardroom, to be honest, and uh, that was the start of another huge story that ran for a few years. Yeah, Mark, another avoidable tragic relegation then and um, as Paul says instead of Gaza Waddler and Beardsley Newcastle were left with Hendry Thorne in Division 2 yeah when you, when you put it in the context like that it's, it's quite um, quite disturbing to re- recollect them their memories it, that, that was my first full season 88-89 where I was hooked you know every game if I could go I would go and it was quite sad again because as, as Paul said they were lost uh, Willie Mack 4 there was a, a, a couple of months it took to get a catch Jim Smith is, is the new manager and as Paul said there, we seem to be selling and buying players every other week. You know, there was no transfer window there. I think it ran out in March or something like that. But um, every other week, a new player was leaving or a new one was coming in. And, um, you know, relegation, it was... We had a, we had a bit of a, a, a spell during, I think, February and March where we might have pulled out of it. As Paul said there in the 86-87 season when Paul Goddard's goals uh, kept up. Um, this time we didn't really have that striker to do that though. But you know, relegate, relegation happened. As I said before, we had a lovely new stand, but we had second division football, and um, the likes of Besant, John Henry, um, and John Robertson, who Paul touched on before, that, that had all gone by the time we were relegated. My um, record signings were, were all departing. Jim Smith just loved the wheel and deal, uh, but we had second division football and would go in, into that without without Michael O'Neill as well. You know he lost his way in that in that relegation season, so it was testing times. But you know, even though there was there would be a um, you know a planned boycott, the fans the fans pretty much stuck with them when we, when we got relegated. How did Newcastle go about tackling 
the challenge of bouncing back up then, Paul? Uh, well, we're back in the second tier and, and more wheeling and dealing followed as the squad was completely changed. Jim Smith, uh, as, as Mark says, loved the transfer market. Out went uh, Mirandina. Jim Smith had no time for him. Uh, and in came the likes of Scotland skipper Roy Aitken, decent player. Uh, England regular Kenny Sansom at the end of his career. And two new strikers, Mark McGee and Mick Quinn. Uh, who sensationally scored four goals on his debut against Leeds. It was an experienced lineup and, and should have been good enough to get promoted the first time of asking. Uh, McGee hit 25 goals that season and Quinn hit a, a, a marvellous 36. You know, the pair of them were just top class. They reached the playoffs, but of course, they met Sunderland of all teams. Newcastle were favourites for the final decider, especially after a nil-nil draw at the old Roker Park. But uh, infamously, they lost 2-0 at Gallagher um, and the season ended on a very low. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't get much worse than losing to Sunderland in the playoffs. Um, I think we should just brush past that <laughs> to be honest, and pretend it didn't happen. Luckily, prospects began to brighten a little bit off the pitch, even if they didn't look great on it. Yeah, well, as the 90s began, the power struggle for control and ultimate ownership of Newcastle really uh, came to a head. Um, the Mad Pack Mad Pie Group was formed, led by entrepreneur John Hall. Um, he, he, at that time, wasn't knighted. They eventually forced a change, and, and that was a huge story in itself. And all that corporate controversy must have affected the players at that time uh, uh, and manager Jim Smith. He, he admitted that later after he left. Uh, United couldn't get anywhere near promotion in 1991, uh, eventually finishing in a disappointing 11th. Uh, new forward Gavin Peacock arrived and he looked a class act during that season. Uh, but Smith departed before the end of the campaign and another World Cup winner took charge. Uh, amazingly, uh, the second one in, in a short period of time, Ozzy Ardales, arrived, um, the famous Argentinian. Uh, but he had little cash to spend, indeed virtually nothing, and he introduced kids from the junior ranks. And I suppose that had a silver lining because they, those kids uh, became stars in the years to follow. People like, uh, or players like Steve Howie, Lee Clark, Steve Watson and Robbie Elliott. Yeah. Mark, what are your memories from this period of, you know, fans enduring what is being served on the pitch whilst hoping for things to change off it? Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? It, it certainly does. I think now we're older and wiser to uh, understand more about it. But back then as a, as a teenager, you didn't really get involved with the politics you didn't really look at you know cash flow forecasts and balance sheets all you wanted to do was go and watch your football side win a football game and as Paul said there it was a it was an aging team it was experienced but it was aging and by the time Aussie come in I think the likes of you know John Burridge Roy Aiken Mark McGee even they just the decline was quite rapid um, and it was no surprise that the, the, you know the kids were given a chance a because we had no money and b because Aussie probably didn't fancy that these players who had you know ultimately failed for eighteen months. But it was welcome, you know. That Lee Clark was a standout player. I think if I'm not mistaken, he may have been linked removed to Liverpool a couple of years before that. And that thankfully we kept a hold of him because what a player he turned out to be. But but yeah, it was great. Robbie Elliott, Steve Watson. Steve Watson was probably the main one for me. And you've got to remember, I don't know if he's still the record. Uh, for the youngest ever appearance, Paul may correct me on that, but he was 16. Youngest, yeah. yeah, he was 16 when he made his debut and he was a standout player. You know, fair, fair play to Aussie for giving them a chance. He probably had to mind. But again, you know, 
because we attracted someone of the calibre of Aussie Ardiles to come and manage our football club, you, you weren't you weren't too upset. You know, you, you did always think, right, we'll go again next season. And, you know, 1991, 92, um, it turned out in a, in a very interesting one. But we weren't we weren't fearful. We didn't worry, you know, of our current situation because we had the kids, we had Aussie Ardiles. It's just, again, another, another memory from that period, though. There was a huge attendance boom following on from Italia 90. And everyone wanted to go and see uh, football again. But unfortunately, Newcastle, it, it, it declined. Some of our attendances that season were pretty, pretty poor. And I, I remember selecting to go and watch Whitley Bay in a cup game that season instead of going to see Newcastle. Um, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that, but it, that's how disinterested in boring the football become. Yeah, this is the season where the club arguably hits the lowest point in its history to date. Not, not just in terms of the mood at the club, but, you know, literally in terms of the league position. Um, as the club, they flirted with the third tier of English football, didn't they, Paul? Uh, they did. Fortunes were looking grim, without doubt. Gates had dropped to an average of just over 17,000, which wasn't very good at all. And there was very limited cash to spend. Uh, the stadium needed much development as well. Something had to change, and it did. Uh, John Hall stepped in fully and, and took over completely. But before that massive moment in the club's history occurred... Uh, Ardelias gave youth uh, a chance that season, but re results were not good. The Magpies actually faced the third tier rather than the first tier. And before the end of the season, John Hall took control and a new manager arrived. And that, of course, was the second coming of Kevin Keegan, initially appointed in a desperate bid to inspire a recovery and avoid relegation. And as John Hall said later, had we gone down into the third tier, uh, the club would have probably ended up bankrupt. Yeah, I mean, we covered the impact of Keegan as a player in our last episode, Mark. The impact of Keegan as a manager, it seemed immediate. Uh, John Hall made that very important phone call to Keegan when he approached him to take over the team, famously saying, the two people talking to each other right now can save Newcastle United. You've got the passion, I've got the money. He turned out to be right, didn't he? He did. It's 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 good to hear that quote again because it's been a while. But, uh, but yeah, you've got to give uh, John Hall credit in this. He knew what he needed to do. He knew how he was going to get the, the the fans. You know, where attendances weren't too bad on, on as a whole, but there was just an immediate lift. I mean, as Paul said, they dropped as low as 17,000 and more or less double for Keegan's first game against Bristol City. I was going to away games at this point, and you, you, had to go, you had to be there. You had to go to the games because you wanted to be part of this Keegan, you know, revolutionising of the football club, even though, as Paul was saying, we were on the brink of absolute disaster with relegation and bankruptcy. So it was, um, it was, it was, it was interesting. It was, it was, you know, he was, he was toying with the, the youth. He was, he had, um, you know, uh, David Kelly, uh, as Paul said, Gavin Peacock, a great forward line. But it was touch and go right, right up until the end of the season. It was touch and go. Yeah, I mean, Paul, remind us how close we came to the old Division Three. Well, it was touch and go. Uh, we were very close to dropping into the third tier of football for the very first time, and that was, you know, very much similar to the the one season in the late 30s when we were saved on goal average. Uh, but we had a crucial victory over Portsmouth at St James's Park, um, thanks to uh, David Kelly's fabulous half volley and everybody there at that time will remember that, that game and that goal. Then there was a very tense end-of-season meeting with Leicester City at the old Filbert Street. Newcastle needed a result to stay up. The 1-2-1, and there was just huge scenes of joyous relief at the final whistle by both players, fans alike. Um, and that was the turning point in Newcastle United's fortunes. You know, John Hall and his new regime moved into top gear during the summer and transformed the club into a, 
you know, what became in, in a very short space of time, a European superpower. And, and at the same time, the entertainers were born. And a huge credit goes to John Hall. We'll probably talk about him in our next episode. But whatever, you know, whatever John said he was going to do, he actually did. And that was a big difference. It was the start of something uh, quite special. Absolutely, yeah. He's navigated us away from a very, very scary time. But the club survived just. Uh, Mark, I was wondering if you've had got any final thoughts on this period, 1984 to, to 1992. wasn't pretty, but it has made for a very dramatic chapter in the history of the club. Well, put it this way, I'm in my 40s now and I'm still getting goosebumps. Listen to Paul, you know, remind me of how close we were to, to disaster but ultimately what the next chapter would become. To summarise for me, it was a coming of age period for me. You know, Newcastle was my life. You know, every single penny I got, pocket money, I paid my own money. It went on to Newcastle programmes, the strips, the, the, the going to the games, that was it. You know, you live you live Newcastle United as a teenager. But from a, from a football perspective, I don't think we could, you know, we, we've moaned a lot over the last few years about how bad it has been under Mike Ashley, but at least we didn't get on the verge of third division football under him, you know. Uh, but still, you look back fondly because of how it ended up at the end of that season, as Paul said. The Leicester game down Filbert Street, I was down there and there was there was basically riots between the supporters, but ultimately you walked away knowing that your club had survived and as, as I've no doubt you'll come to on the next show, we'll, we'll just lift it off after that, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Start of a good few entertaining shows coming up that we look look forward to but this one's been really interesting I've really enjoyed it um, and I just want to take this opportunity to, to thank you Mark and also I want to show people watching on our, our YouTube channel or on chroniclelive.co.uk the background that we've had for this particular episode is uh, an image you shared with me Mark which is Panini sticker uh, yeah. album page from 88-89 season it is Not unfortunately it's, it's the worst one I've shared to be honest but um, but yeah there's this <laughs> There's some, there's some record signings, there's some misfits amongst there. And we haven't even touched on the likes of uh, McCreary, Rodan Anderson, who are absolutely stalwarts for the club. But yeah, uh, but yeah at least Willie McFall's laughing on that picture. <laughs> so yeah, it's a completed page from a, a Panini sticker album, which probably probably reached their peak in the 80s and 90s, yeah. Panini stickers. Um, I don't know if this was your book, but it's been completed. There's 12 yeah. players on there, plus Willie McFall's sticker and the sticker of the team and that must have been a really exciting summer that season with the the way the clash was splashed unfortunately none of the players bought seemed to do the business but it must have been exciting at least for a brief period it, it was you know i mean even little things like we've got the new badge which we've still got today that was that was yeah. launched that summer um we had the new strip we had the new stand um and as paul touched on before was saying what we what we thought were really quality players in best and thorn Henry and uh, and Robertson, but it's just it's just unfortunately there was too many players coming in, and when you lose the likes of Gascoigne, Goddard, and McDonald's, unfortunately it's just it just backfired. I, I do mm-hmm. think though, I do think though that McFall was unfortunate to be sacked. I do think he, he should have been given given a chance, you know, because that was the first time he really got the money to spend. But yeah, um, an interesting an interesting season. I think out, out, the ones we've just mentioned, the most enjoyable one for me was probably the season before 87, 88, because. As Paul said, we finished eighth, and that that was a good good finish for us back then because we were always a mid table table side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just one more image because you are the the specialist in imagery from <laughs> the, the nineteen eighty to nineteen ninety four. This brilliant one you shared with me was this from eighty seven eighty eight. This is Mirandinha and, and Brian Robson pre kickoff on the halfway line at St James's Park with the mascots. 
It is. Um, Paul may remember this one. Um, if you look the, on the right-hand side, you can see the new stand just getting developed there. You can see the Millburn yeah. seats yeah. getting developed above the paddocks. Um, that's mm -hmm. Boxing Day in 1987. And we beat them. We beat Man United. We were a great side that day. But Paul Gascoigne again ran the show. Um, Glenn Rohr, God bless his soul, he scored the winner. Um, and yes, we, 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 that just goes to show Newcastle in a nutshell, doesn't it? On days we could, play, we could beat anyone. But unfortunately, yeah. they didn't come too often. <laughs> yeah. Great image there of Miradina. I think there's a great anecdote there, I think, which Alex Ferguson tells of uh, Paul Gascoigne nutmegs Remy Moses and pats him on the head as he, as he sprints <laughs> off into the, into the distance and probably yeah. thought, I'm going to try and sign that that player, but it uh, never happened, unfortunately. Uh, but yeah, great images. I'll put a, a lot of links going in the show notes uh, this week. I'll put a link to Mark's Facebook page. Uh, it's really great. It's fantastic rabbit hole of nostalgia from 1980 to 1994. So do do check that out. And thank you, Mark, for joining us today. It's been a, a good to have you with us. Absolute pleasure, Chance. Thank you. So that's an, another episode of Chronicle done. Uh, the club is about to be rescued again by Kevin Keegan. So strap in, listener. We've got a superb run of episodes coming your way that's going to cover the entertainers era. In the meantime, if you have any stories or, or images of Newcastle United historic memories, you know, we're always keen to, to see those. So you can email us, the EIBW podcast at Reach PLC, or you can tweet me, I'm at Ketchel on Twitter. Please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast via whichever podcast platform you're listening to us on and press the notification bell so you get the episodes as soon as they land on Wednesday mornings. And follow Chronicle Live's Newcastle United channels on social media. We're at Chronicle NUFC on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, video versions of these episodes are available to watch on YouTube, so you just search for EIBW Podcast on YouTube. And finally, stay up to date with everything black and white by subscribing to our Newcastle United daily newsletters at Chronicle Live. They're free, and I'll put a link to sign up to them in the show notes. If you click that and scroll down to Sport Newcastle United Updates, select that, you'll be signed up to receive all the best Newcastle content that we're putting on Chronicle Live every day for free. Thousands and thousands of Toon fans are, are doing that, so join them, see what all the fuss is about. Thanks so much for listening to Chronicle, the history of Newcastle United, with me, Matt Ketchell, Paul Joannew, and our special guest, Mark Corby. <laughs>